During Advent, we have been learning to wait on God through prayer. And this morning we're going to look at a unique prayer, Mary's prayer, what's been called the Magnificat. Uh, Mary, to set the context, had just been told two impossible things by the angel Gabriel. Number one, that she was pregnant with the Messiah. And number two, that her cousin, her relative Elizabeth, was entering into her third trimester of pregnancy as well. These are both impossibilities because A, I don't know if you knew this, but Mary was not married at the time. She was a virgin, so that was impossible. And number two... Her cousin Elizabeth was barren. And so Mary reacts to this impossible news with two things. First, she believes God despite the contrary evidence. And number two, in a a quite beautiful and human way, she packs her bags to celebrate and support her cousin's third trimester of pregnancy. And this is where we pick up the passage that we'll be reading. And this is where we will find Mary's prayer. And so if you would join me in reading along. Starting in verse 39 of Luke 1. In those days, Mary arose and she went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth was Zechariah's wife, cousin of Mary. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is God's word. Let's just pray briefly before we study his word. Lord, would the same recognition of Jesus' majesty and worth that struck Mary and that struck Elizabeth and that even struck John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb. Would that strike all of us this morning, his worth and his majesty? So Lord, I ask that you would wake up our slumbering hearts to see what is really at stake in Christmas. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
I love what the scholar Greg Forster says about Christmas music. As a kid, he could always tell the difference between Christmas songs and Christmas carols. He didn't grow up in a church, but he could hear the difference. He could feel the difference. He thought Christmas songs were happy. He thought Christmas carols were joyful. Forster says, even before he believed in Jesus, carols, Christmas carols awoke in him a hunger for real joy, deep joy. Something beyond happiness. I think we all know the difference between shallow happiness and deep joy. Or at least we hunger for deep joy. I think we all know the difference between jingle bells and joy to the world. Whether you believe in Jesus or not. And like Forster, we all have this deep hunger for the real thing. Real joy. Deep joy. It seems we also have a memory of deep joy. Like somehow our joy, the deep kind, has been taken from us. It's like Lucinda Williams in her song where she sings, You stole my joy and I want it back. There's a memory of joy in our hearts, isn't there? And it's as if it's gone. There's an echo of deep, deep joy that reverberates in our lives, and we don't know how to get it back. And where can we recover this joy? That's the question. And how can we recover this joy? Is it possible that the very first, perhaps, Christmas carol that we have, Mary's prayer, Mary's song, has the answer? In a way, Mary's prayer is the first Christmas carol, because like it is a prayer, but it's also a song. And like carols, her song is not merely happy. Remember, Mary is a young woman in a culture that was not very nice to young women. A. B. She was an Israelite in a culture, in a Roman Empire that was not very nice to Israelites. And though it's apparent she was godly and trusted, trusted God by, on His Word, she was not perfect and she was not without sin. And so you better believe this unwant, well, un, at least unexpected pregnancy complicated her life in ways she did not anticipate. So this song is not a happy song. It's not a jingle bell song, but it is a joyful song. What does she say? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. It's a joyful song. Where does this joy come from? There's a quality to this joy here that is mysterious and that is deep. It's like when I'm going kayaking. I can tell when the water gets deep, can't you? Something happens underneath you. And when I look at Mary's joy, it's as if we're kayaking on an ocean. There's something there. And I want to taste it. I want to be able to join her. In her prayer, I will rejoice. How can we? How can we share in her deep joy? Mary's song gives us a couple clues. Maybe this will be helpful, helpful for us to categorize them. It seems as if what sets off her joy are two things. The reversals of God and the remembering of God. 
I just want to take a few minutes to look at each. Mary's deep joy seems to be a byproduct of delighting in what? In the, in the reversals of God. This song, this carol, is a love song to God's reversals of all of our expectations. Verses 48, all the way down through verse 53. She is singing of God's reversal. So God reverses first our expectations about the people that he notices. You know, we would expect a powerful God to pay attention or to notice powerful people. But if you just glance at verses 48 and 47, I'm sorry, 48 and 49, you would see that this powerful God pays attention or looks on people like Mary. Who had no power. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has noticed me. He pays attention to the marginalized. God reverses our expectations, secondly, about the people He forgives. Think about this. You would expect a holy God to punish unholy people. Every religion works this way, but the true God extends His mercy to all who cry, help. The true God extends His mercy to all who cry, help. Help, he is drawn to people who know their need. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him. God reverses our expectations. Thirdly, about the people he lifts up. You would expect a mighty God to exalt a mighty people. But Mary knows that God uses his strong arm to scatter the proud and lift up or exalt the humble. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. But how does he use that strength? By scattering the proud. But verse 52, exalting the humble. The true God is a God of reversals. And you'll never taste deep joy until you experience that for yourself. I was trying to give my son, my oldest son, a taste of the reversals of God the other week. We were at Bellas and we were having subs and it was just the two of us. And I looked at him in the eyes and I said, Jude, if you run away from me one day, will I love you less? Jude, if you hit me in the face one day, will I love you less? Jude, if you come home from school and you have a perfect Report card. Will I love you more? Jude, if you become the best soccer player in the world, like you beat Messi and Ronaldo with, for that title, or Mo Salah, my favorite player right now, will I love you more? Will I delight in you more? Jude, is there anything you can do to make me love you more? Or less. And as those questions came in, and every single time he said, No, no, you won't you won't love me less. No, you won't love me more. You could just tell that my steady love for him was sinking into his heart. And as it sunk in, his heart sank. How could it not? How could it not? 
The same is true for anyone of you who have received the reversals of God. Any one of you who have not just intellectually agreed God is a God of reversals, but has received. You are the lowly one that with his strong arm he lifted up. You are the unholy one that he extended mercy simply because you cried help. When you receive that, your heart sings. Joy happens on the other end of receiving God's reversals. There's another reason Mary can have deep joy. And it's found in the final two verses of her song. Verses 54 and 55. God is not only a God of reversals. But it's apparent here that he is also a God who remembers. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke, as he promised, he said a promise a while back, a while back, like generations back, hundreds of years back to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And guess what? He remembered it. He remembered it. It's striking to me as I was studying this passage, how scripture saturated this song is. In fact, if you just decide to study this and if you look at the footnotes alone, you will see that Mary was just spitballing scripture. She started to sing this song extemporaneously and just every single line is just riven with all kinds of scriptural references. The Psalms and the prophets and the Psalms and the prophets and the Psalms and the prophets and the Psalms and the prophets again and again and again and again. Mary was a student of the word when women did not have access like men to study the word. She reminds me of Jane Austen who would hide her manuscripts under her blotter. Did you know that? She would hide her manuscripts when people would come in as she was writing. Because it was not appropriate for her to write books. Quote, unquote. I just see someone hungry in Mary for the word. In fact, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, if you were to ever go, there is a painting there called The Annunciation by Botticelli. It was in the 15th century that he painted this. And on one side of this painting is Gabriel announcing to Mary her pregnancy. And on the other half of this painting, you see Mary receiving that annunciation and standing next to what looks like a book stand. And in fact, and I just learned this recently, if you look at depictions of the annunciation in the history of art, most of them show Mary next to a, like a, a, man, a book stand like this. Take a look next time you look. Why? Because these painters realized that Mary was a student of the word. She was studying the word. She always had the word on her mind. She was a student of scripture. She bled the Bible. When she sang in joy, it was scripture that she was singing. What is she doing? She's remembering God's promises. But listen, that is not why she has joy. Ultimately, the reason that she has joy is because God remembered her. That's what she sings about. It's almost as if her remembrance of God, her remembrance of God's promises is sort of the first step. What really, when the, when the hammer falls for her joy to happen, it's when she recounts the fact that God remembered her and her people. That's what verses 54 and 55 is all about. God made some promises thousands of years ago and he did not forget. Now, maybe you've heard about the 22-year-old 
uh, Katie Poehler. I don't know if you've heard her story on NPR or on BBC. Uh, she narrowly escaped abortion because of China's one-child policy. Katie was not her original name. Instead, her biological parents hid their pregnancy and then connected with an adoption agency in the mid-90s and connected Katie to her family in America, where she was raised. Her biological father attached a letter to her baby daughter, and it says this in Mandarin. Our daughter, Jingzi, was born at 10 a.m. on the 24th day of the seventh month of the lunar calendar, 1995. We have been forced by poverty and affairs of the world to abandon her. Oh, pity the hearts of fathers and mothers far and near. Then he goes on, thank you for saving our little daughter and taking her into your care. If the heavens have feelings, if we are brought together by fate, then let us meet again on the broken bridge in Hangzhou on the morning of, this, of the Kuiji Festival in 10 or 20 years from now. And decades later, Katie makes the trip to this bridge. Her parents make known the reality of this letter when she's in college, and she decides to make this trip. And this reunion is recorded. And it's amazing. But what was more amazing to me is the fact that her biological father kept his promise. Did you know that he showed up to that bridge every year after 10 years? And it's striking to me for so many reasons, but the one thing that strikes me most is that his biological daughter did not even know that he was remembering her. His remembrance of her preceded her remembering him. He remembered her. He remembered her. And when we remember God as Mary does here, it is because God remembers us first. And that's what sets us apart. That's what sets the scriptures apart from every other religious message that you will hear. One theologian says that the story of the Bible is not man in search of God, but rather God in search of man. You could say it this way. The story of the Bible is not man remembering God, but God remembering man. You could say religion says, remember God and he will remember you. Remember God, don't you forget him when he will remember you. But the gospel says in the Bible, the whole storyline that Mary rejoices in is that that will not produce joy. What produces joy, what produces worship is the truth that God remembers you even as you're walking away from him. He remembers you and he calls you back. There is never a day where he stops his remembrance of you. And so any action we have towards him is preceded by his first love that produces joy so let me just ask you a question in closing how can this joy mary's joy be yours i want it first you have to repent god as it says in this passage scatters the proud and exalts the humble so to receive joy you must enter into a life of repentance. It's clear. Christmas is very bad news if you are proud. 
And it is very good news if you are humbled by your own sin and need. Being humble is not a virtue. Being humble is simply being honest with your need. Don't you dare think in your heart right now or in your mind, well, I better get humble. I better get humble. How do I get humble? Here's what you do. You simply scan your need and you bring it to Him. If you want joy, there is only one way. And it's through, it's through the low door to Elizabeth's home and it's by sitting in the company of Mary. The Church of Nativity in Bethlehem is one of the oldest churches in the world and it sits over the supposed cave where Jesus was born. And if, I, if you've seen it, uh, you'd expect there to be a massive columned entrance, but whoever designed this ancient church made the front entrance door to this thing about hip high. And it's called the Door of Humility. And you would think, okay, this is the church commemorating where Jesus was born. This ought to be something magnificent. No, it is a small stone door that you have to practically crawl to get under. And what I'm suggesting for all of us this morning is that for us to have the joy of Mary, we have to crawl through that door and sit in her company. It's humility. It's humble. It's being humbled by our sin. And then you must receive Jesus. Jesus is proof that God remembers you. Jesus is also the great reversal. The two things that Mary sings of in this text, the remembering God and the reversing God, is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus is proof that God remembers. He is, as Paul puts it, the yes to every promise of God. And Jesus is, in human form, the great reversal. So God not only notices the humble, as we hear it in this song, but God becomes humble in Christ. God not only notices the poor, as we sing of in this song, but He became poor. God not only took on flesh, but He took on sin. And He took on suffering, though He was sinless, and though He did not deserve to suffer. He took it all on. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the greatest reversal in the history of the world. That we give him our sin and he gives us his righteousness. All of this happens if you look at the beginning of chapter 1. In verse 26, on the sixth month... Which seems like an insignificant detail until you remember that God created Adam on the sixth day. The sixth day Adam brought sin and misery and death and everything that makes your heart sad. And every regret that you have was brought into this world by the sixth day Adam. But God is sending his six month son. The second Adam. This second Adam is coming to repair and to rescue and to reverse the curse of Adam. And so, Jesus is the reversal. And the way we have joy is not just through walking through the low door, but it's also through receiving the reversal himself, Jesus. 
and then you can rejoice. This song, I think, is an invitation. Mary is not alone in her joy after all. Notice there are four people in this room. Not this room, but this room. There are four people. There's Elizabeth and her son John. There's Mary and the Messiah. There are four people in the room. And three of them are rejoicing. This is an invitation for you to join in their joy. John the Baptist leaps in the womb at this great reversal. Who came for him? Elizabeth sings out, cries out for joy because of the great reversal who came for her. Mary sings for joy that God would lift up her in her humility. Will you? That's the question. You can have the deep joy. It says, if God is inviting you, it's if God would do a work in your heart so that you too, along with them, would be struck by the worth of Jesus. The core of who you are. And Mary shows us that true joy is found only when we magnify Christ. When we make much of Jesus. This is called the Magnificat because it's coming off of the first word of the song, magnify. And Mary is saying, my heart, my soul magnifies God. And friends, we will not have the joy that is described in this text. We will not have true joy, lasting joy, eternal joy, unless we magnify Christ in our hearts. And the only way we will magnify Christ in our hearts is when we see our need first, and when we see that Jesus came for us, and then we receive it, and we join, and we sit in the company of Mary, and we sing of Him. So will you magnify Jesus with me this morning? You were made for awe. You were made for wonder. Will you sit in the company of Mary and experience that awe and wonder afresh? Let's pray. Father, what we need most this morning is we need you to penetrate our hearts and to make them soft. Lord, some of us who know you and have known you and followed you our whole lives. We still need your work so that we can sit in the company of Mary and worship you and have joy in you. Lord, we repent and we confess of all the ways in which we've sought joy in so many other things, work, family, often good things like friends, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, work, grades. Lord, we confess that we are seeking joy in so many things, and maybe they bring happiness for a season, but Lord, if we're honest, it does not bring the deep, eternal, ocean-deep joy that we see Mary singing of today. So Lord, we enter into the low door, we sit with her, we confess our sins, and we receive you, the great reversal who lifts up the mighty, so that we can have a joy that is eternal. We come to you, Jesus, now. We worship you on this morning.